Do we want to ever talk about that again? It feels like it's just, I don't know. It feels like it's just, it's, oh my God. Maybe on a flip side, we can talk a bit about Jim Murray if you want. Whiskey, whiskey, the singer's getting sore. We raise the roof now and we're lowering the floor. The band is blistering, but we got a little more. When I say one, two, Welcome to the Whiskey Topic, the weekly podcast that tends to get off topic. My name is Mark Bylock. I'm the author of The Whiskey Cabinet, and my co-host is Jamie Johnson, who runs a private but approachable bourbon club here in Toronto, Canada. You can also find our podcast on the website whiskey.buzz. Welcome to episode 67 of The Whiskey Topic. Uh, today's topic is going to be whiskey reviews, math, and a lot of statistics. Oh my gosh, I'm terrified. I'm... I'm... I'm truly having a like panic attack about statistics right now. So, but you've done averages. You've done like you know averages and, and everything else. Well, I took stats in university because my my like I went to school for psychology, and you have to have a, like a statistical background. This just brought every every statistical <laughs> failure in my. I was like, oh my gosh, wow. Um, so yeah, no, but I I feel like I could I could get back into it. I think you're going to have to because um, yeah. I agree. I took I took a great year one psychology just as, you know, part of the, the major. And uh, we took, uh, yeah, it was all statistics. I'm like, wait, oh I thought I was gosh. learning about the human brain. Instead, I'm learning about means and averages. And yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and yeah that was uh, that was pretty tough. Um, so today we've um, got Eric Marcotte uh, from whiskeyanalysis.com. Um, uh, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And we're going to be talking about stats um, and whiskey reviews. Um, and so, Eric, I'll let you introduce yourself, but I'll give you kind of my dumbed-down version of your website. Uh, and that's um, you you take a bunch of whiskey reviews uh, from really well-sourced whiskey reviews, and you look at the ratings, and you compare them, and you find kind of like the averages of what's what on average rates very well. And the concept behind the website is that, you know, don't worry about one whiskey reviewer, but look at a bunch of whiskey reviewers and look at the right. stats, and you get the numbers. And and beyond that, I'll just also say you have a wealth of information on the website outside of oh, just yeah. statistics and reviews, mm-hmm. but you also have a wealth of information about whiskey um, and, and everything else. Um, so this is why, I mean, uh, you know, very happy to have you on the show, Eric, and uh, looking forward to uh, breaking down those uh, statistics that you've got on the website. Well, that's, that's great. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And, and let me just start by saying, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of here. This is the fun <laughs> math. <laughs> I mean, it is whiskey math, right? Like, it's whiskey math. So, like, it should be less intimidating for me. There you go. But I'm also going to say, I mean, for me, statistics is the most fun math there is because it's the math that helps us understand things as opposed to make things more complicated for us. Hopefully. Hopefully. Right. Right. I I can remember calculus not being a lot of fun because I couldn't figure out what it was was to be used for. When you're not in engineering, it's kind of hard to understand. But statistics, at least... It, depending on how it's explained and what you're going to apply it to, can sometimes be very helpful for understanding things that are not immediately obvious. And yeah. that's what I like to think happens here with the whiskey analysis. I was going to say, so how did this come about in yeah, general that's... for you? Like, how did you decide that this is how you wanted to, um, like, put forth the information that you got? And how did whiskey analysis sort of come well, about? It, that's a funny story. I guess like most things, you know, nothing ever starts the way we expect it to. Right. And I didn't set out to do the site this way. I think for me, where it really came from, what I was hoping to use stats for um, was for understanding better ways to characterize this different whiskey flavors. And so this is something that's a little bit different that maybe you know, people don't think of. We tend to classify whiskey usually by where it comes from, right? right. 
we and we have kind of an idea what a bourbon tastes like versus a Canadian whiskey. But where that breaks down is when you think of like single malts. And there's a lot of different flavors, right? And it's really kind of hard to say, well, how do you organize these? We then we, we use, usually just sub, uh, subdivide by geography. So, you know, an Isla versus a Speyside and so on. But that doesn't work too well either, right? Because you get different regions can have very different flavors depending on how they barreled it. Right. And so when I started to you know, learn more about whiskey and develop more of a taste for it, I was wondering if there was a way to use statistics to more accurately subdivide, in essence, flavor characteristics in whiskey. And lo and behold, when I looked into it, I discovered somebody's already done that. Uh, there already has been a, a great uh, analysis done of whiskey flavor uh, breakdown by David Wishart, who's a statistician in Scotland, uh, and published in his book, uh, Whiskey Classified. That's gone through uh, a couple of reprintings now. Uh, although I think the last one was about five years ago, so it's, it is a bit out of date. Anyway, the, the principle here is interesting. Um, if you actually look at you know, detailed breakdowns and ratings of uh, flavor components in whiskey, you can sort of put it all back together and then statistically break it down into clusters that sort of identify key flavor components. That now this isn't really open to just personal opinion. It's actually a way of using math to sort of really sort of get at the underlying structure. Uh, a cool idea. He did it very well. It's a great analysis. So I was thinking, well, that's kind of been done. What am I going to do instead? And that's part of the way I found myself here. I was, as I started to look into it more, I could see that there's actually a lot of variation in how people rate quality of whiskey, not just the flavor of whiskey. And I thought there's a chance here to sort of look at that in more detail and to do sort of a proper statistical analysis for integrating reviewer scores, sort of a, a metacritic kind of score. I find this very fascinating because uh, when I was writing the the whiskey cabinet, I uh, was actually I was going towards a very similar direction as Whiskey Classified did, and I was doing research and bought some books. And I'm like, oh crap, somebody's already done this. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and they did it such a great job uh, yeah. at it. I'm like, and it's funny, you went more the math route, and I went more the you know writing route of more the uh, the you know the the story route as far as uh, that the information goes. So I, I well, but that, Whiskey Classified is a really great book, and it has yeah, you're right, it hasn't been updated in a bit, um, but still very topical and and. Very current because he only he only features like one or two whiskeys, oh, typically oh, one whiskey from every distillery. So it's yeah, not like as, as best he can. And, and yeah. there's a few from other parts of the world I think now that work their way in as well. It's a few Irish, you know, mm-hmm. whatnot. But yeah, it, it is limited. I, I have actually recreated part of that his analysis on my site, and I and I continue the I use the same clusters that he developed for adding in new whiskeys, and I do it. It's a long story, but I, I do a sort of a, a reverse engineered method to sort of put new whiskeys into his old categories. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, I find that it's a helpful way just to sort of cluster, well, to follow the, the existing clusters. And it really is the most scientifically valid way to cluster. And anyway, we can talk more about that if you want. But I, what I noticed when I was looking at the data and looking in these clusters is that the typical scores people give were different in different clusters of whiskey flavors. And that was kind of my tip-off that something was going on here. So if you bring it down to uh, something of a specific example, like tell us sure. the clusters and different levels. Yeah, like give us a specific example. Right. So, um, again, if you look on my site, you'll have all the background uh, of clustering, and I don't want to bore everybody. But the, one of the nice things about a cluster analysis is you can pull out which seem to be the key variables or the principal components. And if you do that, so the two principal components that explain most of uh, the variance in the data are from uh, delicate whiskeys to very rich flavored 
whiskies as, mm-hmm. as a general range. And then from being very winey flavored whiskies to very smoky flavored whiskies. Mm-hmm. And those two gradients explain most of the way that the clusters sort of split themselves up. And what I noticed was that a couple of things. If you go from like the delicate to the rich, mm-hmm. reviewers give lower scores to delicate whiskies and higher scores to rich flavored whiskies. So that was one point. It doesn't make the delicate worse, but they do tend to score them lower. The same thing from the whiny and the smoky. So if you have any amount of smoke, the more smoke you have, typically the higher score you get. And the same thing with whiny. If you have any amount of whiny flavors, then the more you have, the higher the score you get. That's a general way to break it down. But you always hear people say that, well, you know, it doesn't matter if you like a delicate whiskey or this whiskey. It's only about you know, the quality of that particular whiskey. Yet when you look at reviewers, they consistently give lower scores to more delicate whiskeys versus rich whiskeys, for example. Right. And, and I mean, that, that kind of makes sense, too, right? Because they're, they're reviewing uh, whiskeys, and for them, it's like what's giving them flavor. And right. uh, if they're, I, I always think of this as, um, as the difference between somebody that reviews whiskey and somebody that occasionally, very occasionally drinks whiskey, um, where if somebody drinks a lot of whiskey, they're, they're likely to have a palate that's now really energized over something new and exciting. Exactly. I feel the same way about restaurant critics as well, uh, mm-hmm. where if you go to read a restaurant critic, I'm like, wow, he gave this restaurant a really bad review, but it's very classical French food and it's fine and I'm really enjoying it, but I understand for him it or her, it's boring and exactly. less interesting because, yeah, they've seen this a hundred times already. Let's move on to something else. Right. And my first experience of whiskey many years ago was some heavily peated thing that to me, I'm not having been prepared at all for whiskey, mm-hmm. I found it overwhelming. I, and, I, and I remember remarking at the time, this tasted like peat moss and vodka. <laughs> yeah, that's sure. all I got out of it. Alcohol right. burn right. and peat. Right. Yeah. And it put me off it for years, honestly. Makes so sense because alcohol you associate yeah. with vodka and, and, yeah. and then peat was peat. Yeah. 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 Thinking, why would you want to drink this? And so. Yeah. That's, I think for most people, you're, you know, there are people who start on Lagavulin and say it's the best thing I've ever had. And it was my great introduction to whiskey, but wow. they're kind of rare. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, yeah, that I is would pretty... tend to agree with that statement. Like the number one, you know, sort of excuse I hear for people not wanting to try whiskey is that they started off somewhere yeah. in that big peaty, smoky range, and someone gave them a drink of theirs or whatever, and it just completely turned them off. Turned and they off. think that all whiskeys are smoky. I like that. But, yeah. but I think you, you were absolutely right, Mark, that what happens is for reviewers, they tend to work themselves to the extremes, right? Because they've gone and they've developed their palate. So now if it's not heavily smoky, they don't really care for it because they've worked themselves into that, that, uh, that corner. Now, but that doesn't help the newcomer. So right, when you're looking right. at scores and you're saying, oh, they really kind of crap all over these you know, lighter whiskeys, I guess they're not very good, right? But you have to really consider them, I think, as their own class. So I was very interested to see, well, if, we, if I can find a good way to calibrate the reviewers against each other, then you can kind of ignore the absolute value of the score, but just look at the relative scores that a certain class gets. So if you look in the clusters that, that Wishart developed, take the lightest cluster, you could actually say, okay, well, what's the quality range in this cluster of whiskeys? And so you could say which are the best and which are the worst ones, but you're not, they're not like a 95 versus a 65. That may be like uh, an 82 versus a uh, 62. Right. And, and your, one of your examples that I liked on the website is you compared Glenfiddich 18 with Glenlivet 18. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So you had here like these two classic 18-year-old 
with uh, scotches, uh, you know, and the comparison was, well, uh, which one of these two is the best? And Glenfiddich 18 seemed to seem well, to score better. Okay. Quite. Actually, so that, that's an interesting example for the other thing I, I found interesting is there. It tells you something when the reviewers all agree, and it tells you something when they disagree. Mm-hmm. And so the interesting part with the Glen Livid and the Glen Fiddick is that so the eighteen-year-olds are both basically the same price. They are in the same flavor cluster on the cluster analysis. Um, they at least at the same price. You know, here at the LCBO, for example, uh, they're both commonly available, and they both have about the same average score in my Metacritic, which is properly calibrated for each of the reviewers, they have about the same average score, but the standard deviation of the score, which is a measure of the variance, how much reviewers disagreed, is about two, two and a half, almost three times higher uh, for the Glenfiddich than it is for the Glenlivet. Hmm. So what that tells you is really interesting, is on, on average, reviewers agree this is a, to be honest, slightly above average, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, whiskey for this flavor class, on, on that's the average reviewer opinion. But everyone almost consistently agrees with that statement for Glenlivet, whereas in the Glenfiddich camp, there are reviewers who hate it, reviewers who love it, and reviewers who think it's about average. Huh, gotcha. And so it, it averages out, but so you really have to look at that variance. And this is the example I give on the site, because that tells you something too. So if you're going to walk into a bar, and you're going to just try a sample. You only have enough time or money to try one of the two. You're just going to try one dram, you know, blind. Which of those two would you would you go for? Knowing what I just told you. Guess I would do the Glenlivet 18 because it, be, yeah. it would be a yeah. safer safer go. Right. And so when you're walking wow. into a bar, do you always just want the safer option? No. You no, not always. Yes. Always. In fact, I don't want the safe option. Time. Absolutely. <laughs> do, do not give me any safe options. <laughs> well, but, the, but that's the point. It depends on your mood, right? What you're in for. Right. It depends on your personality. If you're more of a risk taker or gambler, right? And it also depends on the cost it's going to be. So even if you were someone who likes to take a gamble, because maybe you'll hate it, maybe you'll love the Glenfiddich. You don't know which side you're, you know, which camp you're going to fall into. But maybe you're willing to take that on a single shot. But are you going to take it on a whole bottle if you're binding blind? Right. No, that makes perfect sense. I, I, Probably I, not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then I use the other example, too. If you were buying it as a gift for your father-in-law, different decision? Yeah, and, and totally. And I, and I really I, I love that you – like I really do see perils here because when I was writing when I was writing a whiskey cabinet, my goal was to take the numbers out of the equation and yeah. to talk more about – the type of flavors you got in the whiskey. And, you know, if you like Glenfiddich 18, you may like this whiskey. So it was more about kind of, it was, wasn't was a mathematical analysis. It was very much a subjective uh, analysis of the whiskeys. And I think that's really fascinating because you're right. You don't want to give uh, a recommendation where like, hey, you know, tomorrow go and buy, you know, Stag. It's it's only going to cost you $1,000 aftermarket, but it's going to be really great. And yeah. you're going to have a first-time whiskey buyer, picks up a bottle of Stag and is going to, you know, choke on, on 60 plus percent alcohol. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and dryness and oakiness, and and they're just not going to know what to do with it. Um, and, and so the the idea of categories is really interesting. Yeah, I was going to say you have an advantage there. You could just tell them to go buy Eagle Rare, <laughs> right? Exactly. Right. Well, not it, as much burn. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, no, it, it is a good point with this, and I think you're right. You don't want to get caught in the numbers, and this is not a my site's not for people who want to subdivide to so many decimal points differences. That's not the point. It's just to kind of give you an overall range of the rank. Really, that's what it comes down to. You just want to kind of rank the whiskeys. So if they're all the same price or you know what the price is, you only have so much money, so much time, 
you wouldn't really get the best bang for your buck, most likely. So mm-hmm. highest perceived quality for lowest price. Right, right. It's a great resource, especially for whiskey in, ter- in terms of, you know, there is always that, you know, whiskey is seen as such an investment. Um, it is such an investment. You're not talking about, you know, a bottle of wine. I mean, you could always go for, you know, an expensive bottle of wine, but I definitely think that when people want to buy whiskey and they haven't been able to try it, this is a good, really good resource. Really yeah. awesome. And let's, let's be clear, too. Right? I mean, the industry is bad, and they could sell an awful lot more in smaller size volumes, but they don't want to, it seems. Right. Right. Yeah, right. sure. Force you to buy the whole bottle. Yeah. Right. That's a good point. The whole bottle. And then you get stuck with a couple three-quarters full bottle that you're trying to pawn off on your friends yeah. when they come over. <laughs> and if you just would have like looked much. at this Excel spreadsheet, this, you just would have known better. Wow, this is great. Yeah. We all have those experiences, right? We, we, and that's the other problem. We buy something because usually because somebody recommended it to us. Right. Oh, you'll love this. And you go, my God, I can't drink this. This is awful. What do I do with it now? <laughs> right. So, this is the other part of that. And, and Mark, you referred to this, that, and I make this claim, and it's backed up by the data and the site repeatedly, that you are better off going by the Metacritic than you are going by any one individual reviewer. It's the difference between, although Yelp is a terrible example because it's Yelp, um, but it's the idea between like you kind of go for, you know, a a group of people that do review whiskeys and what their general sentiment is. um, And then you can get to know a whiskey reviewer uh, more intimately. You you know kind of what they like and then you start. But even in those instances, I mean, you one of the critics that you mentioned uh, that you have in your whiskey Mm -hmm. jug is one of them. Uh, which has been on the podcast a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I know our palates generally line very well uh, when scoring whiskey, and sometimes they just don't. And it's just, you know, like, so even if I bought everything Whiskey Jug had recommended or he right. bought what I would recommend, we would still have this little, you know, variance of 10% of what we recommend that would be just off the wall right. uh, different. And it's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating look. Um, but I think that's where you kind of, you kind of go from a broad audience to a narrower, narrower, narrower audience. And then when you go to a specific reviewer, it's just a very narrow audience at that point. Yeah, well, part of the problem with that, too, and that actually gets back to the other reason I did this analysis, kind of like what you're saying, I just sort of assume, because it is sort of the, the gestalt out there, that you know, there are reviewers who are probably a closer match to your palate and preference than others. And we kind of go looking for them. Right? Mm-hmm. We look at people's reviews and we see, well, that kind of matches what I think. Let me see what else. You know, it, it, It's a good... you know. Um, it's kind of a good first pass for us when we were trying to you know, choose something. We want to rely on you know, some kind of filter. And so we're going to rely on some expert that seems to be aligned with us. And we'll use that as a proxy for what we're likely to like next. We, you know, it usually works okay. But this is where the math is great because the math allows you to quantify how good of a match you really are to those people. And when I did that for myself, I was surprised by the result. All right. So how would I do that on your website? I'm very curious. You can't. Oh. And I, and that's, <laughs> and that's on purpose, actually. Because originally, oh. I, what I thought I was going to do was give you all the normalized raw scores for each of the reviewers so you could do your own matching and mm-hmm. see who you correlate best with. But when I started to build this up, I realized, you know what? You're always going to correlate better to the Metacritic. Gotcha. It is okay. always best. And this actually kind of surprised me because I always figured, okay, yeah, sure, on average, there'll be this kind of average one that works pretty well, but I still thought there'd be a few individuals who are, you know, like me, so magically distinct, right? And we would really be, as a small group, better matched than the overall average. Yeah, it doesn't work out that way. Hmm. 
and it doesn't work out like that for anyone. This is what's really surprising. I've had a lot of back and forth with some of the reviewers, including Josh from the Whiskey Jug. And I find especially the younger ones really get into this analysis. And they're really kind of curious about how they correlate uh, to some of the other reviewers. Mm-hmm. And it, it can be surprising. It was surprising for me. I remember there was one reviewer, and I'm not going to name who they are here, but there was one. Well, I'll use a Canadian example. There were a couple of Canadian reviewers. There was one in particular I thought, you know, I really think I'm, I'm in tune with this, with this guy. We seem to have very similar rankings. I'm sure we're going to come up very highly correlated. And there was this other reviewer I thought, you know, I really can't stand this guy's reviews. Uh, you know, he just sounds like a windbag. And I just I don't really like how he writes things. I don't really find he explains flavor very well. You know, I don't, and I don't think we fit very closely. Well, lo and behold, I fit much closer to him than the <laughs> one I really liked <laughs> reviews. <laughs> and it goes to show you, because I'm being biased mm-hmm. by how they write. Right. Yeah. I really think this one has it right, and this guy I don't agree with. And yet, look at look at the numbers, and it's like, oh my god, I correlate better with this one. How can that be? <laughs> it goes to show you we fool ourselves all the time. Is we find a few small pieces of things, right, where right. we really kind of click and say, oh, okay, we, we must be more alike than I think we are. And it's like, wow, that bad. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> <laughs> so well, this is why I was going to do that on the side. I was going to give you the option, then I realized, you know what, you're there's no point. You're better right. off just going by the Metacritic. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, I mean, your, your list, so if you, if you go to your, uh, your website, you can go to the uh, Metacritic database and you can search for your favorite uh, whiskey there. Oh, or, yes. you can just, or you can sort by the Metacritic number. Uh, so uh, Brora, is it Brora? Brora, 35 scores, the highest, uh, Redbreast 21. Yep. Uh, Brora 30 uh, is in third. Um, we'll go, so I'll just go down to uh, Pappy Van Winkle's fifth, Lugavolen 16 is right behind it. Um, you know, four rows of small batches in there, art bags in there. Um, so you've got a pretty good list of whiskeys. I mean, mm-hmm. Talisker 18, uh, Abulara Boon is there. Um, yep. you can't really go wrong. I'm trying to see what your first Canadian whiskey is on the list just because, uh, uh, yeah, you different curious. ways to sort it. But by, by the way, Gibson I 18, out, yeah, that's yeah, Gibson 18. It's, it's one of the highest, and, and I think it's a great whiskey personally. Yeah, I agreed, agreed. It's probably one of my favorite uh, top Canadian whiskeys. I was uh, going to say, Eric, what's your what's your uh, go-to whiskey right now? Ah, that, that's a good question. So um, I guess it depends what kind of flavor mood I'm in. Yeah. Um, so my favorite for, for a sherry bomb right now, mm-hmm. um, and that's, of course, when you're really in a certain mood, uh, right. is uh, that's, that would be the Cavalan uh, Solist Sherry Cask. Mm-hmm. So they're individual cast bottlings, and I've got one, and it's like the color of mahogany wood. Wow. It's Super amazing. Super sherry. Oh, yeah, 60%, whatever, 63, whatever it is, and it's like, it is outstanding. Much better than my Abunar, which I thought was great, but this is noticeably better. Right, right. So. Nice. I, I guess I, I, should, I should ask right now also, uh, Mark, are you drinking something? Are you having something to drink, or are you not? Uh, no, I am. I'm doing the uh, W.L. Weller Special Reserve, nice Ooh. and simple for uh-huh. today. There you go. Uh, but uh, really, really fun whiskey to drink. Good, good kind of daily sipper. I like it. That's a good choice. It's a I, I was going to say, by the way, I, you know, you mentioned Stag. I, I, I'm, it's going to be one of my upcoming reviews. Uh, oh. Stag Junior, actually. Yep. So, uh, and that's why I made the comment about Eagle Rare because I like Eagle Rare, and I find you know mm-hmm. the Stag is really just an amped up version of it. 
funny that you speak about Eagle Rare because that is what I'm drinking. Oh, yay! I love Eagle Rare. Isn't it I nice? really do have a yeah. sweet spot for it. You know, it is. It doesn't, it doesn't yeah. get a lot of press for some reason compared to and, the others. Yeah, and it's actually it's. Uh, I'm not sure. So I spent a couple of weeks, uh, two weeks in the LCBO, uh, working for Glenfiddich and doing some uh, promo stuff for them. And I was stationed in the whiskey section, and the Eagle Rare remained untouched. I was watching them like. All the bottles were flying off the shelf, Barter House, Four Roses, all this. And Eagle Rare. And people would pick it up, but then they put it down. I was like, is it the bottle that's the problem? <laughs> because it? I, don't know. I don't know. I mean, let's be the, the bottle isn't great. The the, the no, bottle isn't. isn't fantastic. The juice inside is phenomenal it's stuff. Absolutely. I, 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 easy you, peasy. Yeah. It's a fantastic easy to drink. Bargain, yeah. ACBO. Yeah. So I just you know, I just sort of stood there, and, and every time somebody put it back, I was like, no, no, just hey. But, of course, I you know, wasn't <laughs> going to say anything because I'm wearing, you know, Glenfiddich uniform. But I'm uh, <laughs> not going to run down, chase down all the, the people and throw a bottle of Eagle Rare in their hand in their cart. But, yeah, I was really shocked at, uh, at how it's not going. And I know when it, ever, when it comes to the LCBO, we run and grab some just in case. The word gets out that people are, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, on that point, something I noticed, I saw a picture once. It broke my heart. Somebody had stacked Eagle Rares at the LCBO, I think, at Summerhill on their side. Oh, no. <gasps> oh, no. And you think that's bad? I, I walked into the one at Queen's Key the other day. Actually, I picked up a bottle of the Red Breast 21. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah nice. Had, they had a couple bottles in for a few days, so I snagged one. And when I was there, all the other red breasts in the display case, uh, half of them were up, were on their sides. Oh, they had no. the cash drink, the uh, you know, twelve-year-old all, and they were all on their sides. And I'm going, I hope this one wasn't stored on its side. Oh, Elsevier yeah. is famous for that, or they store with things against the window. Uh, yeah. For <laughs> listeners at home, don't, don't, just don't. Up, up. <laughs> Yeah. I'll need to be up. Uh, that's just the way it is, and not yeah, against sorry, the window. Yeah, sorry, don't want to get distracted by. We can go on all day about the LCBO. Yeah, and those totally. bottles up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I had to go tell someone. Oh well, I'll, I'll let them know. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> uh, anyway. Well, actually, that's a great. Um, that's a great um, uh, topic because one of the questions I have for you, which I think. Um, you know, with reviewers and variants, we, um, I don't know if you talk about this on your website, but there's a lot of variation between battle, uh, bottles and batches. Oh, yeah. Uh, you may get the bottle that was sitting out in the sun. You may get the bottle that was sitting in the back of the warehouse for a while in hot, hot conditions. You may get the bottle with the bad cork. Um, so, you know, this is one of the challenges for me when, you know, looking at whiskey from like a numbers mathematical point of view is, ah, your bottle is not going to be the same as, as right. the others. There's some variation there. But this gets back to why you're so much better with the uh, Metacritic again, because it's sort of averaging all this out, right? Yeah, and explain that to you. So you're going to – you take out the – well, generally you will take out the highest and the lowest score, correct? Is that You can. How... I, I don't. Okay. Um, I've, I've played with doing it different ways. Um, it's, I find it's not necessary. There's a lot of ways that you can sort of rank them uh, and, and figure out how to relate multiple reviewers. What I found was when I, when I built the data set, if there were – Reviewers who were consistently outliers from everyone else, mm-hmm. um, or, or if their scoring pattern didn't match the others, I, I, I didn't use them in the final group. I should explain what I mean by that too. So one of the things I talk about on the site is the, um, the scoring range that people use and how it's not normally distributed. Mm-hmm. And all reviewers are consistent in this regard and that they're all skewed. So it's funny that they all, almost all of them actually use a scoring system that was developed for wine, you know, the Robert Parker system, yeah. where you're supposed to be scoring from like 50 to 100, and 75 is supposed to be the average. 
But when you take a look, and there's a, there's a couple of charts from some reviewers on the site, you'll see that they all, first, they all look different from one another. So they all interpret the numbers differently. But they also are all skewed in the exact same sort of way. So their scores tend to be bunched up to the high end. You can think of it like, like a ski slope. If you looked at, a, at it, going to the left, you have this long, gentle you know, ski slope run going down. And on the right, you have this cliff. And everything is squeezed up against the right of the, you know, the range so that they give very high scores to things. And the average is nowhere near 75. The average is about 85. Yeah, it's funny. I, I literally, I'm, I'm staring at a, a draft article uh, I'm working on, and that, that's exactly my point, uh, was how, I, I, would, I didn't have the numbers, but I was like, ah, scores are probably somewhere between 85 and 90 is yep. kind of the thing. That's that what the average for most reviewers. Because you get two things. You get reviewers that review whiskeys that really enjoy, um, and then also there's the, the kind of the polite, uh, the polite um, social aspect of reviewing whiskey. It's like, you, you, you know, you're not going to review a whiskey 15 out of 30 and call it average. Um, right. So you call it 85 out of 100, and now that's your average score, uh, theoretically for your average whiskey. But you also tend not to review whiskeys that are, you know, like uh, on the lower end as well because, you know, that's we're right. not as excited about reviewing those whiskeys right. either. And there are some reviewers who do a really good job of doing a wide range, but most specialize at a higher end range, and then they also have their regional specialization. But I do find it interesting, if you look at every single reviewer that is on my site, and I have you know, a good number of them there, they all have the same overall general pattern of being skewed the same way. Nobody ever skews the other way. They don't skew to the low. They always skew to the high. And this is actually important in the analysis, because although they all deviate significantly, in many cases, from normality, you know, the typical bell-shaped distribution, they all do so in a way that if you can um, properly um, calibrate them against each other, you can actually average them out because they all show the same pattern of skewness. That's very, very interesting. And it makes so much sense. Also, um, you know, you kind of asked, you know, there's, uh, you know, Oliver from Dramming.com recently. I, I think he's also included in your stats. He is. Um, he's recently left uh, reviewing. He's, he's moving on to, re, uh, I guess, reorganize his website and go in another direction. Um, but it seems like, you know, the industry almost naturally supports reviewers that there's also industry bias. Um, so reviewers right. that get free whiskey are likely to get bottles if they, you know, this may not be oh, intentional. Yeah. I'm not, not at all saying anything's intentional in, in every case or any in, at all, but just there's a skew like, oh, you're, sure. you're a reviewer, you rate my stuff favorably, here's free bottles of whiskey. Um, and that's likely, you know, oh, you're an Arbeg fan. I'm an Arbeg fan. Well, here, here's, here's a lot of Arbeg. Oh, you're going to review a lot there's, of Arbeg now. There's plenty of ways that we can wind up sort of psychologically, you know, biasing ourselves. Right, right. Uh, and, and, and intentionally or not. Right. I was going to say, it doesn't have to be necessarily intentional. It's just like if uh, PR companies know you like peated whiskey, here's a lot of peated whiskey. If they know you like a lot of sure. high-proof bourbon, here's a lot of high-proof bourbon. Sure. Um, and it just biases those results in an interesting direction. That's not intentional on the outset, but I mean, a lot of bloggers, we, you know, a lot of bloggers are doing this for free. So they're doing this with, me, with the intention of reviewing whiskey that they get as well. Let me ask you a question. I'm curious, since you, you both have so much experience in, in talking, you know, with all these different reviewers, what's your impression of the kind of scores reviewers give to different classes of whiskeys? So like, you know, single malts versus bourbons versus Canadian. Do you have any general view? Um, I, I do. I, um, I think the, the biggest, um, I think the biggest drawback, I, I go back to wine when I talk about this. So for me, it's uh, a lot of wine reviewers I find tend to like either white or red wine. And then the right. challenge for them is, well, how do you review red wines if you don't particularly like the general 
flavor of red wine, or do you re- re- review red wine? So uh, if you're a bourbon reviewer, if you don't like scotch, you know, well, then how do you review scotch fairly? Um, and so, um, and I think, uh, you know, a few reviewers talk about this. Uh, I'm in that, that boat where for me, it's more about kind of what are the negatives of the whiskey rather than what are the positives? Because I feel like that gets you closer to a fair score, uh, depending mm-hmm. on what my palate preferences or biases might be. Uh, but they still exist. I mean, I think if anything, I love, enjoy high proof, like the kind of whiskeys you described, high proof, flavorful, sure. uh, peated, don't have to be peated, uh, but flavor forward, but not too sweet. So I, my palate is naturally going to detect flaws if I don't get those elements in the whiskey. Um, and um, so, yeah, I think it's a very fascinating discussion. I really do. What about you, Jamie? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I totally agree with Mark. Like, it's uh, it's looking through people's website. There's definitely you can sort of like the the bias is there, and 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 um, you know, bourbon people versus Scotch yeah. person. It's 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 very apparent sort of right away. So, yeah, I I am being aware of your you know your biases is only you know it that only goes so far it still exists uh you know even if you do sort of claim ownership of it so um yeah i and i don't review um i don't review whiskeys i'm it's just not anything that i've ever thought about doing because i i probably would end up doing the same like I would, I, my biases are so strong, especially to that, again, like Mark said, like big, bold, high proof stuff that, um, yeah, I, uh, which yeah, is, super, which is understandable. Yeah. I mean, I think for, for all of us, I, I'm just, I was curious to get your perspective because it's, it's something that one of the things that is a bit unique with my analysis is that I do calibrate for which types uh, of whiskeys the reviewers choose to review. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. reviewers tend to choose, uh, let's say somebody reviews only Canadian whiskey, mm-hmm. and Canadian whiskey, by definition, tends to get lower scores than you know whiskey Aww. overall. Yes, I know, sad, <laughs> national, Aww, you know, national pride, t- where did it go? I know, what happened? But you, you do Canada. tend to see that in the score. So if somebody only reviews Canadian whiskeys, or if they review a wide range, their ranges can be a little different. And that's, that is all corrected for in the scores. And I do this sort of multiple pass uh, iteration of normalization that takes into account so on the specific whiskeys that people are reviewing, what do the scores look like? And so I, I calibrate people not just overall for their entire catalog, but I do do it for the specialization of how they chose to specialize on those specific whiskeys. And this was an important part to really get the stats up to a very high correlation value on the meta-analysis. You know, at a simple level, you could just average people's raw scores, which you'd get a mess. You could do... Uh, kind of rank order calibration, which is the first step, which would give you something better. But I actually do several iterations that give you a much better result. And you can verify all this statistically that you know it works better than simpler methods because it takes into account which whiskeys they choose to review. And so their, you know, an individual's average in the Metacritic uh, winds up being higher or lower depending if they have a specialization into some types or others. But I bring it up because I did do on one of my, one of my posts I looked at where what the typical scores are for different classes of whiskeys, mm-hmm. and what what Mark did a minute ago. You went, you, you do something. I, I try to encourage people not to do, which is just sort by score, because the problem is you're then you, you're really biasing yourself to look at single malts when you do that. <laughs> right, right. single malts get the course. highest scores. So the way the, the the default sort is set up on the the tables on the site is by flavor cluster, and then by score. 
because it, you're likely to care within a flavor cluster. So I, I tend to break it up on the site by what I call rye-like, bourbon-like, um, single malt-like, and scotch-like, by which I mean a blend-like. Because I find those kind of categories seem to be where different world whiskies can slot themselves in. When you do that, it, the score is within each of those categories. And for single malt, you really need to subdivide flavor further. But when you do that, and that's how it's broken up on the site, you at least get an idea of, of what the ranking and range is like in a you know, restricted cluster. Uh, that kind of relates to people. But anyway, there are some interesting numbers. I, I did an, an analysis on one of my posts, and I looked at kind of what, what whiskeys fall into different categories. So I like get the lowest end, so the lowest scores, which are usually in like the mid-7s or mid-70s. Mm -hmm. um, you don't find any single malts that score that low. Mm. Hmm. But you'll find things like Jim Beam, Rebel Yell, Ancient Age, <laughs> uh -huh. bourbons. You'll right. find Crown Royal, you know, Canadian Club, and you, then you'll find things like the blends, like Johnny Walker Red, you know, Cuddy Sark, and so on. But no single malts. Hmm. Then as you start to go up, you begin to see this other pattern. So like around the eights or eighties, you get the, your regular Jack Daniels, the somewhat better Jim Beams, Wild Turkey, you know, so on. You start getting, you know, some of the slightly better Canadian Rise, some of the better blends, the entry level single malts show up. But by the time you get up to like the nines and the nineties. Now you start dropping off things that are not malts. So basically, no blends. Right. 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 Make it up there anymore. Right. Maybe Ballantine 17. Maybe. Uh, you'll still keep some higher end Canadian things like, you know, Lot 40 uh, or like Whistle Pig or, you know, whatnot. Uh, and you'll keep some of the better bourbons. But by the time you get to the mid 90s or the mid 90s, it's purely that. And that's basically the list that Mark was reading out your, your Broras, mm -hmm. your Kalilas, your Red Breasts, your Lagavulins. You will not find a rye anymore, right? You, you lost them a long time ago. And for bourbons, maybe some of the pappies, maybe some of the you know Buffalo Trace antique collection, but that's I think more because of their you know rarity. Right. So yeah. it's very interesting that people have these natural ranges. Now, are single malts that much better than bourbons? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, also price point. I mean, you're looking at a yeah. lot of dollar signs on the yeah. website. That's, I mean. Yeah. Like the Lagavulin 16 is the cheapest that runs yep. out the top five, um, and it's still not all that affordable. Um, so yeah, you, you also have that aspect of it. Fascinating. Oh yeah, and that that and that really is another goal for the site. I mean, it really is arbitrage, right? Your ability to relate quality for price, but also, but, but you have to realize you got to do it within a cluster. If you're going to compare a very delicate like. Um, like a lowland, like a an Auchentosh and you know, twelve year old, or I'd say a, a Dalwini. So the Dalwini fifteen year old is one of the most highly ranked delicate whiskies in the, in the data set. If you want to compare that to you know a Lagavulin, well, it's not going to do very well. But if you wanted to try a delicate whiskey, it's one of your best choices. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely so, agree with that. So it's that kind of calibration. It's interesting on your on your list, and I'm doing exactly what you told me not to. Um, it's the uh, two <laughs> Canadian Cana two Canadian whiskeys. I, I would say are uh, show up as the best value among a star of a lot of expensive whiskeys, uh, single malt, malt scotches, and that's uh, Canadian Rockies, 21 year old, which um, I don't know much about, uh, and then J.P. Weiser's uh, Legacy is just just behind that, which is you know really intended for like that kind of bold flavor audience as well. Um, so it that's is, a, yeah. it's, that's interesting because you typically do the assumption is Canadian whiskey may not be as flavor forward, but also affordable for further flavors you're getting. So that's a, kind of interesting that Canadian whiskeys are probably the first kind of 
cheaper whiskeys coming out on that on yeah. that list. Yeah, I, I, it's funny you mentioned that one. Actually, I, I had the I had the Legacy last night. I was just trying it uh, again. It's been a while. I'm thinking, yeah, there's a lot of flavor in here, and I think that's why it does so well. Uh, but you know, for its score, it, it doesn't really compare to me to you know like a nice uh, you know I don't know 21 year old. Uh, uh, you know, Kulila or, you know, whatever. It's funny that, you know, absolute value of score doesn't really seem to match, but it's an incredible value for its price. Yeah, because it's, it's, like right uh, yeah, it's right around Brooklady, Octomore 7.1, and Abrilara Bunda, and yeah. Redbreast 12 cast yeah. strength. It's in that that Right, and that's probably why you shouldn't make that comparison. Probably, <laughs> like I said, probably I'm doing exactly there, honestly. <laughs> yeah. That's just how the scores that the reviewers use put it. Yeah, so it, it is fascinating because I, I I agree with with all that. It it's not. It's a great uh, rye. I mean, that's that's yeah. what it is, and it has a lot of flavor, right? But actually, in some ways, it's well. Again, if if you're a bourbon drinker, I suspect you might like it yeah. um, because it, again, there's more flavor. I I personally prefer the Gibson's 18 because I find it more uh, subtle. I guess mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, it's not as overtly ryeish. Yeah, fair, fair. Um, the um, I I don't know uh, Jamie. Do we want to talk about Crown Royal North Harvest Rye, or do we just want to? <laughs> do we want to ever talk about that again? It feels like it's just I don't know. It feels like it's just it's oh my god. Maybe, maybe on a flip side, we can talk a bit about Jim Murray if you want. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Jim Murray. Our our friend, our buddy. Uh, we we don't actually know Jim Murray. Our friend, our buddy Jim Murray. Let's let's talk about him. <laughs> well, so so. There is something interesting. So on my, my review of, of the Crown Royal um, Harvest Rye, um, I, I do an interesting a, a sub-analysis of Murray's scoring. Hmm. And so something, and I, I discussed this, I, he's one of the few reviewers I identify by name in the background pages because people often figure there's no point trying to merge all these reviewers because they're all so different. And they right. point to Murray as an example. He is a bit of an outlier. But then again, so is like Ralphie, for example. Right. Everybody right. loves Ralphie's reviews. <laughs> I think because of the way he delivers them as well. But he has a, he's a font of knowledge. It's amazing you know, how much he knows about the industry. And they're a lot of fun to watch, his reviews. Right. But his, his scores are often very different from Jim Murray's. And they're both actually fairly different from the overall average. They tend to have a lot more extremes. They, they, they come out and they really you know, hate something or love something that most people don't really share that view. And they, they both do this a lot in opposite directions. Mm -hmm. And now I think Ralphie is, is pretty consistent in one sense, but Mr. Murray is surprisingly, there's an interesting pattern to his reviews. When you look at how, so I do an analysis of um, where he differentiates the most from other reviewers. So, and, you which, know, I'll just, uh, just I'll just uh, pause you one second. I just, uh, for listeners, uh, Jim Murray writes the, the Whiskey Bible. I know we, we talk about him occasionally, but uh, uh, he writes the Whiskey Bible. And so anytime you see the best whiskey in the world comes from Canada or comes from Japan or comes from the U.S., those headlines are whatever Jim Murray says, essentially. Typically, uh, he's got a lot of press there. So it's that's an why end I, of one. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> one person's opinion. From exactly. one, one person's opinion from one sample. From one sample, and probably just one sampling. He does a lot of samplings in a day, right? <laughs> he does. So sorry, I, I just meant I just wanted to no, put no. in perspective. So uh, keep going. No, that's fine. It's a good point. It's good to give the background. But so, but he, he's a very dominant character in, in the industry, and people tend to ascribe you know a lot more value probably than they should because he's again only one individual. But what's interesting is when you look at how he differs from all the other reviewers, there is an interesting pattern, and the pattern is at the high and the low end. So there's a lot of expensive single malts that most reviewers, probably because they're expensive, but whatever, most reviewers give good scores to that he just hates. Hmm. And at the other end, 
there are a lot of very budget Scotch blends that he loves, gives massively high scores to, that everyone else consistently agrees are pretty low end. And this is where it differentiates him. He's not random about it. Instead, what it seems to be is that he kind of goes out of his way to give really low values to things that people perceive highly probably because of price. Mm-hmm. Honestly. Right. And, but at the other end, I find really odd. And I, so I really can't calibrate him. If you look at some of the things that give, he gives massive scores to, so in addition to Crown Royal Northern Harvest, um, he gives almost as high a score to the regular Ballantines entry-level blend. Yeah, the twenty-dollar a bottle Valentine's. Um, he gives Alberta Premium. Don't ask me why, but he loves it. I mean, it, it, it's it's sold at the floor price at the LCBO, and in my view, it's not one of the better options at that price. Right. I, I think I, one of the things I read on your website, which I thought was uh, uh, brilliantly put, is um, Jim Murray. One of the first Canadian whiskeys he ranked har- highly was Alberta Premium. And um, the the honest, I mean, honestly, it's I don't think it's a very good whiskey. I think it's a good whiskey for what it's intended for. It's not a, it's not intended to be a sipping whiskey. Um, I don't think it is, and um, I don't particularly like it. And I, it just the fact that he rated it highly meant people went and bought a lot of Alberta Premium and That's were like, right. "Wow, this is really bad whiskey." I guess Canadian whiskey is really bad. Um, and you know, same, similar to the situation with Crown Royal North Harvest Rye, though I think that's getting more positive feedback with the same idea, like, oh, this is the best in the world and the best Canada can do. Oh, okay, right. well, that's that's beyond. pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and to be fair, Northern Harvest is a decent rye yes. whiskey. It is yep. absolutely. Right? It, not, yep. not, and not bad value for the price. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and that's consistently sort of like across the board whiskey people, uh, you know, in in Canada, like whenever we've been asked this, you know, either on the podcast or otherwise, it's, you know, it's a great whiskey for what it is. Is it the best whiskey in the world? No. Is it the best Canadian whiskey? No. <laughs> but it's good. Exactly. Fine. It, it's, it's good. It's fine. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's good to yeah. get the press. But you're right. If people go and drink that and say, this is the best you make. Is, yes. And, but if you, if you look at Mr. Murray's score, as like I said, you know, Ballantine's gets a very high score. Well, he gives regular budget Ballantine's a higher score than he gives Ballantine's 17. Yeah. yeah. Jameson's. The entry-level bottle of Jameson's gets a higher score than most of the premium Jameson's. Yeah, and, and I do think that, that his philosophy is that, that fault-based. So like Jameson's, there's no faults to it. It's fine. It's a fine, you know, it's fine Irish whiskey. It doesn't do anything right. bad, it doesn't, you know, it's a fine whiskey. Uh, but I think that logic can give you well, these and, outliers. And that's, that's the challenge when you're looking at different reviewers. They often say this, they have a rationale, right, for how they're, why they're ranking this higher. And, they, you know, especially when they subdivide the scores. I find that gets a little silly sometimes, you know, that so many decimal places they're giving, you know, the nose versus the this. And it's like, really, come on. Mm-hmm. Um, but they often say that they have a, a strategy they're following. But I have to tell you, when you look at the numbers, that usually doesn't hold up very well. Hmm. So I think people wind up kind of imagining this is how they're scoring. It's not actually how they're doing it because they're not consistent by what they say is their is criteria. There, so is there any way to is there any way for a whiskey reviewer to counteract their that sort of thing? Well, there is, but it's dangerous. And what that is is to look closely at how other reviewers score. Hmm. And then you wind up biasing yourself to what the herd thinks. Got it. You're not careful. So right. most of the, and that's the thing. When I so one thing that I do on the site, every time I add a new reviewer, I, I contact them and let them know I've added them to the site. And so far, I mean, those who have bothered to get back to me have usually been pretty positive. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people have just, you know, not responded. I'm guessing they're not quite so happy. 
Hmm. Um, I don't know. No one's ever come back. I haven't received any lawyer letters yet. <laughs> <laughs> but it's typically the younger ones who come back. And I, and I always make this offer. I say, if, if you're interested, I'm happy to share with you more data than what's on the site, specifically how you correlate to other reviewers, if you want to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, almost, there's only like one or two who have taken me up on that. Most of them say, you know what, I'd rather not know because I'm afraid it's going to bias me. Right. So it, it kind of depends wow. on people's relationship to the numbers. If yeah. they want to know or if they're afraid of that, that effect. But it's, it is interesting. You know, reviewers often think they're doing things for a certain reason. But to be honest, and this comes back to what, you know, in my, in my professional life. So I, I manage um, research funding uh, for an agency for health research. And one of the things, although it's not part that I do, but we do, we've done a lot of effort at looking at understanding how people review applications because everything we do is peer reviewed. And so we have, you know, experts in the field review applications that come in to decide who gets funding. And in that process, you have to figure out ways of sort of, again, calibrating reviewer scores and combining them if you're not going to have them, you know, meet in person. And one of the things we, we note when, when we look at this, there's um, a lot of different kind of criteria people can use. So we often try to constrain people and, and sort of force them and say, okay, we want you to break it down this way. So you're all doing it as consistently as possible. But the reality is, you know, people will go and do what they'll do for their own kind of, you know, reasoning. And the fine gradations between their scores usually don't matter. It's the overall rank that really matters. So at the mm -hmm. end of the day, you're really saying, what did you like better than something else? Right, right, right. And you're, you're often better averaging people's ranks than you are averaging their scores. Mm -hmm. Now, in my case, on my site, I don't do that. I keep it as the scores for a couple of reasons. One is that it's nice to have a number that matches kind of what you'd expect you know, for a score. But I also found that it actually worked slightly better than just ranking. And Because ranking, again, there's, statistically, there's, there's benefits to the normalization process through percentile ranking versus Z scoring, which is what I do. But because I do this iterative method where I take into account the different whiskeys people choose to review, I find the Z-scoring method that I use actually gives a better result than ranking. But in many cases, it really just comes down to rank. If you can put things in order, and that's all your scorer is doing, it's putting things in order for you, you can actually average the people's relative orders and get a pretty good outcome, just as a very simple way of doing this. I can't believe you do this all and you have a full-time job. <laughs> you... It's a, your passion comes through. Like it's it's really awesome. It's it's incredible to keep up this site. It it, it is a lot of work. Cause I have to keep constantly. I, every day I look and I and I usually start my day and I say, okay, what reviews came out among all my reviewers? Because I have to wow. add them to the data set. Unbelievable. And wow. it's very it's very manly manually curated. I mean, I've got I don't know how many. Uh, I'm afraid to open the file and see how many data points. <laughs> they all have to be entered one by one and then, you know, verified and confirmed. And, and we do have this challenge because reviewers, of course, we review the same whiskey. And this gets back to Mark's point. You know, there, there's a lot of variation, right, from batch to batch or even as a bad bottle. And so what happens when a reviewer comes back and re-reviews? And some of them do that and some of them do it fairly frequently. So what I've done on the site is that I've kind of kept it to within about scores for the last five years or mm -hmm. I guess six years now since the site's been up for almost a year. Um, so over the last six years, because realistically, going back further in time, the batches were probably fairly different. Right. Mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm trying to focus there. But when there are cases that show up where there seems to be um, a change in opinion over a certain time point, I'll actually subdivide it in the whiskey and the database. And so you'll see, like, for example, Highland Park, 12-year-old, 
you'll see uh, mood soured on this one mm-hmm. uh, somewhere around 2013. Mm. And so I actually subdivide. I give the overall average for Highland Park 12, and then I give the scores pre and post the point where a differentiation event seemed to have occurred. Wow. So that when, when is the, wow. That that involves looking at the data, right, and saying something funny is going on here, and then you know reading the reviews and seeing what they're saying, and it's like, okay, something seemed to have changed in the batch. And they don't seem to be making it quite as well as they used to. Wow. You so. sort of have everything accounted for. Like, oh, yeah. You, well, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well that's, and that's what I do as well. So yeah, when, I was going to say it's what you do, so it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and then, then there's different ways. that ha- How do you deal with multiple scoring from the same individual? And, and so often what happens is I, I'll average. So if in the last five years they've done two reviews, uh, I'll average their scores. Or sometimes I'll just replace it with a newer one if, they, if there's an explanation as to why. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so it, it does come down to sort of context, uh, but I, I love reviewers who you know frequently re-review the same whiskey because it's yeah. really helpful to understand you know changes over time, especially if they still have the old bottle. Yeah, right. yeah, right. It's a head comparison. Oh my gosh! You know. How, yeah. Wow. <laughs> How does that even happen? How does a bottle stick around that long? Oh, yeah. I don't think I've ever had that happen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> then you have to worry about that. Anything happen is the bottle changing over time. Well, exactly. Right. Right. That's Absolutely. So, that's wow. actually some, that's something I'm planning to look into more. I, I've done. I've. I've. Uh, uh, as part of my research, I, I. I have full access to scientific journals. And so I've, I've downloaded a whole bunch of articles and looking into factors like oxidation and aging oh, effects. Oh my gosh. That's Mark right. would just love that. Yeah, that's right that's up gonna Mark's be an alley. That's going to be an this upcoming is, article. I was going to say this is something I'm also writing about because it's been uh, it's been a big topic of discussion on the podcast and um, and it's just always comes down to whenever I do blind whiskey tastings at my place, um, what I do almost always I have a ball that's been like heavily heavily oxidized. It's just you know it's been around for a year or or, or, or so uh, you know uh, at a heel level, so quarter fifth level. And every single time, it's like the least favorite bottle for most people, or most people are like, ah, it doesn't lack, it lacks character, it lacks. Well, the flip know. side to that, I can't tell you how many people I know who have a bottle of Canadian Club they got as a wedding gift, you know, 25 years ago, and they say it tastes much better now than it did then. <laughs> <laughs> Some things might benefit from aging. <laughs> but, no, but to be serious, I mean, I, I'm trying to look into it in more detail because I have to tell you, my preliminary review of the review of the literature suggests that. You know what? It's probably not oxidation. Whoa. It, instead, what it probably is is so yes, it's exposed to a lot more air, mm-hmm. uh, but because of, of, of you know all, all the all the the congeners and the elements and the whiskey, uh, oxidation is probably and of course the high alcohol content. Oxidation is probably not what's uh, affecting the whiskey so much. Rather, because of that, you keep changing the airspace, so you're losing a lot of the volatile component over time. Every time you open the bottle and pour yourself a dram, you're exchanging the air. So if you think of all that aroma, right, that builds up, like if you, you, know, you do the tasting, if you cover your glass for a while, right, and then right. give it a good sniff, you get a very rich kind of set of aromas that come out. But what you're doing is you, you're, you're repeatedly changing the air. It's kind of like you're fanning the whiskey. So you know, it's, it's like that. evaporation is essentially but, what but you're saying. But it's not just evaporation of the alcohol. You're specifically removing the volatile components. Right. The stuff in solution is staying there in the whiskey. But the stuff that's volatile, you're actually pulling it out of the whiskey by keep you keep changing the air with fresh air. That Makes sense. Air. You've got a cork, you've got pressure, you pull it out, it pops. That those volatile molecules just evaporate, right. well, especially when you pour, because air yeah. is going to come in. So you're right. replacing air right. that is full of the volatile compounds with air that doesn't have it. 
and you're doing this over and over and over and over again. So you're probably what you're probably doing more than oxidizing is you're diminishing the whiskey by removing uh, some of these volatile compounds that are just gone from the air exchange. We're constantly changing the air. Anyway, that's my theory. I got to look into it more. But that from my preliminary review of the literature, that might be a greater effect than actually oxidation. I that's the first Can't time wait. I've heard of that, but yeah. that uh, sounds very like it sounds so plausible um, because you know I mean I've been you know. It, just on this topic of the whole time about the change in the variation from bottle to bottle um, and mostly from, sure, batches, but also mostly just the bottle as, as you drink more of it. Um, I always say, like for me, it's always the sweet spot is when the, the whiskey kind of goes just below the neck. I find that when I first open a bottle, it's a little too tight. Yeah. I don't get a lot of flavor. And then like when it's just below the neck, I'm starting to get the whiskey opening up. Um, and I've always uh, associated with oxidation just because, I mean, I didn't even consider this other, uh, other thought that you're just replace, you're replacing the air inside. Uh, the whiskey uh, bottle. That's yeah. fascinating, and I'm totally. You're, you're, you're helping it breathe. Yeah, that's interesting. That's so interesting. I mean, it's um, a cool area. It's one one I plan to look into more. But you know, uh, there's a just a, a somewhat slight side topic. But there's a recent uh, post that I did as well. I did. A, I spent a, quite a bit of time looking at a recent review article saying about asking whether or not you could differentiate bourbon from rye. Yeah. Yes. This article. Yeah, we've we've yes. had a podcast about it even. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, yeah. How'd that go? What the, what, what was the uh, general take? Um, I think the, I think it's too complex. I think, um, high, high rye bourbons and low rye, low rye rise, uh, create a air of disaster, uh, in these kind of tastes where it's, it's hard to tell them apart. Right. Well, anyway, I've got a detailed statistical analysis of that paper. Oh, okay. So uh, to give you the short version, the way they did their stats was great. They really know what they're doing, but the way they assembled their sample, Mm -hmm. uh, to separate the clusters is fraught with problems, not least of which is their own data showing, uh, I won't get into the details, but it's kind of like they did a cluster analysis by naive people who didn't have enough information or data or experience to actually cluster. Yeah. And they very likely either inadvertently or deliberately set it up to kind of have a, an extreme effect by using an outlier. If you look at it, they have it as, a, as a, the same group published an excellent analysis of the chemical components of whiskey, and they clustered them, and they did a great analysis, and there's a very interesting point to that analysis that there's a, a bourbon that consistently, whether it's a rye or whether it's a bourbon, consistently, consistently pulls away from all the others on its chemical constituents. And everyone believes that's Jim Beam. Uh -huh, interesting. And the reason is that mm. people talk about Jim Beam as a, as a definite peanut kind of note. Mm -hmm. You get that? You don't tend to get it on the others. And so this is kind of Jim Beam's signature that you find in everything. And even naive people can detect it. So if you let them free associate, they always pull the Jim Beam products out. Oh, this is this is really great because yeah. we were uh, I didn't see your article before we did the podcast, um, but we when we did it we were because they really grouped them by distilleries. Distilleries, and yeah. we were joking around like, well, if you can't group Old Forester, <laughs> this, like Brown Foreman together, then I don't know. Like Brown Foreman yeah. just groups so well together, Buffalo Trace, yeah. uh, and yeah. so I, I'm just seeing the list of uh, yeah. distilleries. So it's basically Brown Foreman, uh, Buffalo Trace, uh, Beam. Uh, are, are are the the predominant distilleries in Heaven Hill? So I mean, like, yeah, of, yeah, there, of course you're there, gonna group all those an, by distillery. There is an apparent huge selection bias in what distilleries they chose, which is suspicious, given they had a lot more data to work from from their previous analysis. Yeah, so interesting. So you could you could have unintentionally, intentionally or unintentionally gamed the system here for the result you were expecting, based on what you already knew, and that's a big issue in statistics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're right. not approaching this right. properly. So, 
the analysis is okay, but their selection of what they chose to look at and how they looked at it with the with the samplers, that's where the big problem comes in. Anyway, so I, I go through all the all the pitfalls on that one, but I thought you'd find it interesting. Yeah, either, for so sure. The curiosity. Yeah, we'll on post the topic. we'll post that uh, in the show notes for sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Uh, uh, I was yeah. just gonna say we're uh, we're at one over an hour. So, is there yeah. any way that we wanna anything we missed? We'll uh, uh, wrap her up. Interesting. I think so. I mean, we kind of got off uh, sort of the topic, which which is great. I mean, if yeah. they just go to the site, they'll see the background. If they care about how I do the the more detailed stats, I I think the point is, and and this is the the message I always want to emphasize that you know the Metacritic consistently over and over and over again really does the best job of sort of smoothing out all these variations about different you know samples or batches people had and to be honest the inconsistencies we all have as reviewers because let's face it you know you're in a good mood bad mood one day it does color your whiskey you know perception so it really works i'll be honest from a statistical perspective it worked better than i expected mm-hmm. um and i mean i spent a lot of time doing the calibration but just the level of correlation is much higher than i i thought it would be and I am still surprised that I, I cannot I cannot find an individual that who's a better match to me than you know the Metacritic is, and it's the same for each of these right. reviewers. <laughs> and I compare them to each other. It's really interesting how awesome. you know yeah I, I don't know it really comes down to I think that interesting point about what it is that we we tend to be somewhat consistent in how we perceive quality, but we can't always explain you know what it is or why. Right. Right. We try to make up a way of framing it, but really your best is looking at the data and seeing what the data says and not what the people, you know, coming into it think they're doing because it can be quite different. Yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating. I, um, I really, uh, you know, you, you talk a lot about topics that, uh, that uh, Jamie and I have been talking about the podcast I've uh, had in the book and I just like, wow, this is really gravitated to our uh, topics of conversation. So, uh, you know, Eric, it's been really great to have you yeah, on. Yeah, thank um, you so much pleasure. for coming on. Uh, um, really uh, learned a lot. And, um, you know, so it's the website. The website is whiskeyanalysis.com. That's whiskey without the E. Um, and, Both uh, work, though. I, I okay. registered the other domain as well. Yeah. Well done. Well done indeed. <laughs> um, and uh, just uh, you go in and uh, really, uh, it's it's a it's, it's a both a review what, site. It's a, it's a, it yeah, is. it's a definitely really juicy. You could just sort of get lost in there for a couple of hours. It's awesome. Yeah, very, very topical reviews uh, and uh, of whiskeys that are making news at the moment, and then also the years the uh, the database where you can. Uh, don't do what I did. Do not rank them by score and go down the list. Don't do it. Uh, don't do it. that. Just don't do that. Do the opposite. Oh, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> it's all it's all there just to you know be hopefully educational for people and, and useful. But yeah, no, I'm totally on board. I I think this is uh, it's it's fascinating. I think uh, reviewing whiskeys is is an imperfect science. And you know, I've said this on the show before. For me, like with uh, with the science background, it's my worst part about the whiskey review is it's a hundred point scale. And when I write ninety-one point five, my the mathematician in me says, "Oh, that means you're accurate to that, you know, point five. And I mean, the accuracy just isn't there. Um, But having this uh, like analyzing different reviewers over time. Uh, is uh, is an important part of the step, but I mean, also you know, whiskey reviewers do train their palates. Like we, you know, we don't uh, we don't just review whiskey out of the blue. There's certainly a process to it, um, but it's not perfect. And I think that's where uh, whiskeyanalysis.com uh, comes into play. And I think it's a really nicely done, Eric. Uh, yeah, well done. So impressed with uh, with what you have there. Oh, thanks, guys. I really appreciate that, and I thank thank you again for giving me the opportunity to have the interview. It's been fun, you know, chit chatting with you, and I'm always happy to answer any other questions you know you might have or any questions from your listeners. Uh, I do get people you know contacting me both about the stats and about specific whiskeys, which I think is great. 
Um, especially if anybody has any suggestions, if there's like whiskeys you think are missing from the database, you'd like to know more of, let me know because I'm I'm always adding new ones as well. Okay. So that's why it keeps Sounds growing great. on almost a daily basis. Oh, this is are, great. So reach out to Eric. Uh, he's out. got a contact page. I was going to say, are you yeah. on Twitter? Uh, no, no. Good for uh, you. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there is an email address you can reach me there uh, it's right on the, uh, the home page um, so it's, it's basically it's just self-built at uh, whiskeyanalysis.com and you can also of course leave feedback anywhere on the site that's another way to get a good way to get a hold of me as well but cool. yeah like you're saying it's, with a full-time job this is busy enough so I'm not, I'm not able to really respond in the social media and the real-time nature kind of required you know it's oh, better yes. by email I can do it when I get you know free evening or you know whatnot. I think that's why I didn't come up about you until like literally when yeah. I emailed you because I'm just like, um, wait, this is, website exists. This is what? What's going on? I, I just found it on a on a Google search and uh, I thought that was pretty great. Um, thank you so much, Eric, for coming on. Thank um, you. you know, thanks guys for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks all.